0: Let me me start with this. I'll give you a little context, okay? So the the angel appears to Mary and tells Mary, you're going to be with child, and it's going to be the savior of the world, right? And she's, she's engaged to be married. She's not yet married. Imagine that. Imagine being engaged, right? You just get engaged, and you're told you're going to be pregnant with the savior of the world in a culture that would kill you for adultery. Right A lot of fun, right? Starting out on a good foot. And so Mary is in this space, Luke chapter one, where she's trying to figure out what does all of this mean. That's the question that she asks. She says, "What does all this mean? How does all this apply to me? And yet listen to her response when the angel is done talking to her. It's Luke 1 verse 38. He says, "I am, she says, "I am the Lord's servant." Mary answered, "May your word to me be." Fulfilled. Then the angel left her. We read that, and we do not, by any circumstances, understand what Mary is doing there in her response. Her response is unbelievable. The implications of her response. She's from a no good backwoods town of Nazareth, right? Where nothing good can come from Nazareth. She was about to be a pregnant teenager before her wedding day. And her life was about to explode into this cascading gossip and drama fest in a culture where Deuteronomy 22 is still in effect. And it tells you, if you become pregnant before marriage and you're found to be guilty of adultery, you're dragged out into the street and you're stoned. And that doesn't mean high. That doesn't mean seeing rainbows and funny colors. That means they take rocks and they crush you. They throw them at you until you're dead. That was the implication of marriage. Her we got to wrap our mind around it. Her yes comes at an incredible risk, at an amazing risk. Her being willing to say, I am the Lord's servant, whatever he needs me to do, I will do. What she's saying is, if they're going to talk bad about me, if they're going to make accusations about me, constantly, if they're going to hurl accusations of infidelity towards me and try to stone me and kill me and everyone be against me, I am still the Lord's servant and whatever he says, I will do. Listen to me. Calling is not always what you want it to be, but maybe what God needs you to do. Mary's calling was not what she wanted. Trust me. But it's what God needed her to do. And you see in her response, I am the Lord's servant. Whatever he needs of me, I will do. Calling is not always what you want. Calling is sometimes what God needs you to do. You may not want to get along in your marriage. God needs you to be a humble servant in your marriage. You may not want to work hard and serve in the blessing and the capacity and the job that God has given you, but God has given it to you, and he needs you to be faithful so that he can bless those who are faithful with little with much. Calling is not always what we want. Mary didn't march in to Bethlehem with a smile on her face and say, The one carrying the king is born. In fact, and we'll talk about this in a week, so don't let me get stuck here, but the tradition was when you traveled to a place, you stayed with family. That's the only thing that you did. Only the outcasts, the homeless, and the poor had nowhere else to stay. They traveled to Israel on behalf of a census being held by Rome, which means every family member was gathered. Joseph was of the line of David. Joseph had tons of relatives. He knew high people and high places, and guess what? They had nowhere to stay. What does that tell you? Everybody was rejecting them. Everybody was closing their doors to them. Nobody gave them a space to stay, so much so that the Savior of the world is born with animals in a manger. Mary's calling was not what she wanted it to be, Mary's calling was what she had to do for the Lord as his servant. And then once she responds and says, I'm willing to do it, she breaks out into a song. And this song, it's been called the Magnificent or the Magnificant by the Latin Vulgate. The Greek word is magnitio. It means to be magnificent. It plays off the first line of Mary's song. It's the Magnificent is the name of the song that she wrote. And I want you to hear Scott McKnight. He's a theologian in the UK. Maybe he's the one who's watching in the UK. I don't know. He says this, and I, I think this is great. He says, for Mary's world... The Magnificant was what we shall overcome was to the African American community in the 60s and 70s in the United States. It was an anthem against oppression. It was an anthem against abuse from Herod to the Jews. It was an anthem against religious oppression by the Roman Empire. It was an anthem against the oppression of Israel and the suppression of women. Mary comes in the face of her circumstances and she writes this unbelievable song in the face of everything coming against her we've got to wrap our minds around this this was not just a happy-go-lucky beautiful fun time with holly and joy filled through the halls and everyone singing jingle bells right this was a mess and it was a massive challenge the greatest honor of mary's life was delivering jesus the greatest challenge of mary's life was delivering jesus isn't that interesting? The greatest honor was bringing the Savior into the world. The greatest challenge was bringing the Savior into the world. Luke 1, 46 through 55. Follow me, this, is, this song is so good. And Mary said, my soul, I don't know why every translation says glorifies. That, that word is magnified in the Greek. My soul magnifies the Lord. That's where the, the, the title comes from for her song. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. Notice the juxtaposition throughout this whole thing. God is magnificent. I am humble. God is great and does great things. I am nothing more than his little servant girl. Listen to this. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. Verse 50. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised to our ancestors. I have a friend. His name's Ernest. He is the pastor of a traditional Orthodox church black church in Rochester, New York. His dad is the presiding bishop over a collection of traditional orthodox black churches. He is doing his dissertation on uh, the orthodoxy of Coptic priests in the black church. (laughs) Good luck, right? He's very, very smart. He's a great guy. And he and I were sitting and we were talking uh, when I was in Los Angeles. We were talking about um, the African spirituals those are, the African spirituals were songs that were written by Africans that were captured, and they were brought to the United States to be traded as slaves. Under intense brutality, they would write these songs, and these songs were mourning and lament of what they were going through, of, of how they were being treated, of the hopelessness, of their situation. And they were they were spiritual songs. They were worship songs that they would write. In fact, I'm going to read you the lyrics to one of the most popular. There's over 6,000 of them that have been collected. And, and it's unique because they're all written in minor chords. Everything that we sing is written in a major chord. It's got a, a big, beautiful sound to it. The minor chords have a somber, lamenting sound to them. So even the, the chords that they're written in are this somber, kind of lamenting song. And and so I'll read you the lyrics to it. It says, uh, this is Go Down Moses. When Israel was in Egypt's land, let my people go. Oppressed so hard they could not stand, let my people go. Go down Moses, way down in Egypt's land. Tell old Pharaoh, let my people go. We need not always weep and mourn, let my people go. And where these slavery chains forlorn, let my people go. Go down, Moses, way down in Egypt's land. Tell old Pharaoh, let my people go. Oh, let us, let us all from bondage flee. Let my people go. And let us all in Christ be free. Let my people go. Go down, Moses, way down in Egypt's land. Tell old Pharaoh, let my people go. So I was talking to Ernest. Like, man, I, I don't hear those songs often anymore. And he, he said, honestly, we probably don't sing them in, in traditional black congregations enough anymore. He said, but what a lot of people don't understand, and this gripped me, he said, is they did not want to be singing those songs. He said they wanted nothing to do with, they did not want to be singing them. He said they had to sing them. It was the only thing they could do to speak to their soul, to keep their spirit alive during what they were going through. He said it's not always about what you want to sing, but what you have to sing in some moments. Listen, it's, it's not, Mary's song was not a song that she had been preparing that she just wanted to sing for the perfect opportunity. She is telling her spirit how to feel. She's saying, God is magnificent. I'm his humble servant, but I believe they will call me blessed. Blessed. I believe they will see the goodness of God in my life. We have to wrap our minds around this. And then she gives us three little juxtapositions, if you will. She says, humility magnifies the Lord, the fear of God brings mercy, and hunger brings good things. That's where we're going to land, and I promise you we're going to connect the dots. And Christmas, um, the first place that we're going, and my goodness, I'm excited about this, the humble servant magnifies. I've wanted to preach on humility for a couple of months now, so forgive me if we just have a mini message here in humility, and then we'll, we'll just wrap up at the end. But listen to what Mary says, Luke 1, 46 through 49. It says, and Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. We have to see this. The humble servant is the one that magnifies the Lord. The humble servant, the one who is willing to say, it's not about me. I'm going to be a humble servant. That's the one that magnifies the Lord. Now, I need you to lean. Come on, just lean in a little bit. Lean in. Come on. Lean in. Lean in. Wake up. Lean in a little bit. I need you to lean in a little bit because we have to build a little bit of foundation of what humble servant means to really get what I think God is wanting to speak to us. So I can't have you drifting off. I can't have you wandering away. We're going to go out a little bit and then we're going to come back full circle. Are you ready? It's the home team. Come on. You ready? Lean a little. Lean a little. Lean a little. Okay, let's lean in. Here, first, let's build a foundation. Philippians 2, 1 through 9. Paul says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in Spirit and one in mind. Here you go. Do nothing. Do nothing. You know what that means in the Greek? Nothing. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Don't make it about you. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. I love it. Here's what Paul's saying there. Christian maturity is when you learn to grow beyond yourself. That's Christian maturity. Paul said, you want to have the same mind, same spirit, same hope, same love, go beyond yourself. Grow beyond yourself. And then, listen, he gives us the example of Christ in in verse 5. Start in verse 5. He says, In your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. In other words... When he was here as God's son, he wasn't walking into the convenience store saying, I'm not paying for my Slurpee. Do you know whose son I am? Do you know who I am right now? Do you know where I've come from? Do you know what I can do with the snap of my fingers? One or two lightning bolts. What do you want? Because it's coming for you right now, right? He didn't hold that over people's head. In fact, what did he do? Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, the humble servant, what do we see? The humble servant, skip down to verse 9. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. How did he ascend to the name that is above every name? By not being arrogant, prideful, and making everything about himself. By being humble and a servant and considering others before he considered himself. I love this story. John chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, get John chapter 2 up. If you don't, we'll have it on the screen. But I want you to follow this. And you got to, I mean, we lean in a little. You've got to lean in a lot for this one. You've got to follow me with what we see here, okay? John 2, 1 through 11. This is the miracle of water to wine, wedding of Cana in Galilee. It says, on the third day a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. So we've got Mary, she's there. We've got the disciples, they're there. And we've got this luxurious wedding party. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Verse 3, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. Verse 5. His mother said to the, lean in, come on. His mother said to the, his mother's talking to the servants now. Do whatever he tells you. Nearby, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for the ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Verse 7, Jesus said to the, who's he talking to? To the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, who's he talking to? Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so in verse 9. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from. Catch this. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Who knew at this point? Who was the only group of people that knew at this point? The disciples didn't know. Nobody else knew. The wedding party didn't know. Later on, in the verse, it tells you the disciples just believed, but they had no idea how it had happened. The only people that knew were the servants. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have already had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. Verse 11 What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which. He revealed his glory. Who did he reveal his glory to? Wedding party had no idea. Disciples had no idea. Who were the only people that knew? The servants, the servants were the only one that saw the magnificence of God, that saw the magnitude of God, that saw the glory of God. You got to carry the jar to see the glory. It was the servants. They were the only ones who got to see the glory of God revealed. We always talk about you want to be great, you know, develop the faith of a child. And we do a very dangerous thing when we use that for theology. Oh, that means, you know, have the faith of a child. That means be very, very simple. Have the faith of a have the theology of a five year old. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. Solomon talks about that Proverbs one. It's not about simplicity. What he's saying is, and you have to grasp this: children were considered servants. What was the firstborn child's job? He was dedicated to the temple and a place where he would serve. Children were the servants of the home until they grew up. So listen to Jesus, Matthew 18, 2 through 4. Jesus called a little child to him and put the child among them. Then he said, I tell you the truth, unless you turn from your sins and become like little children, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. So anyone who becomes, catch it as humble. It's a humble servant. Anyone who becomes as humble as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The humble servant sees the glory. The humble servant experiences the glory. The humble servant becomes great in the kingdom of God. Now here is why this is such a challenge. Are you ready? We live in a culture that tells us everything should be about us. We live in a culture where everything is about us. It's about me. It should be about me. The God of our culture is self right now. And it is perpetuated in everything. And here's what happens when self becomes God. Love becomes lust. It's about getting what I want. Sex becomes getting my needs met. Porn becomes entertainment, because I enjoy it. Marriage becomes something to make me happy. Divorce becomes my courageous act out of something that no longer made me happy. Gender becomes whatever I decide it to be. Sexuality is whatever I want. Theology becomes self-focused therapy. Biblical righteousness becomes happiness. Holiness becomes my wholeness Truth becomes my feelings. Love others becomes love only those who are like me. My temple to glorify God becomes my body, my choice. My gospel becomes my comforts. Politics become my evangelism. Social media becomes my identity. And the entire world shrinks to my own personal circumstances. And all that is left... Self. Now, here's what happens we enter into attention because that clearly describes our culture. So now here's the tension because it's easy. It is easy. I'm not faulting any of you if you were like, ooh, darn it, that's me. Uh, because that's all of us. We, we are getting pulled into this culture all about self. But we have to decide something because who is it that sees the glory? Who is it that experiences the glory? Who is it that sees the magnificence of God and then experiences the blessings that follow after? It's not the people running around making everything about them. It's not the people pointing to themselves and saying, My happiness is the only important thing on the face of the planet. The most blinding thing in your life to the glory of God is self. You will see his glory in relation to your humility. You will see what he wants to do in you and how he wants to bless you and how great he is and how good he is in accordance to with humility. Definition of humility is seeing myself appropriately within the image of God. So it's not like, oh man, I opened your door, I I was humble, or I don't brag about myself as much as you do, so I was humble. It is, I look at God and I look at me and I find my place. I look at God, I look at me, and I find my place. And self... It's distracting, it's blinding, and it's keeping us away from who we're called to be. Pastor Nick Sabin, who also happens to be the coach of the Alabama Crimson Tide, University of Alabama. He was in a press conference where they were talking and they, they started challenging a team and they were saying to him, uh, you, you guys aren't winning by enough. <laughs> not just winning games. He said, well, I, f- I feel like we've taken a step back. It's the media. It's the fan base. It's all of these people, these boosters that were kind of saying, you know, it just doesn't feel like we're winning by the, the, the same margin we were before. And he goes full blast on
1: them. Enjoy a minute of this interview. Go. because right, our players work our, their butt off right, to be the best that they can be right, and to get criticized for what they work hard for to do so that you can be entertained. All right, so that you can enjoy and have pride and passion for what they accomplish and what they do. And they're not perfect. All right, they're just college students. They're going to co- they go to school every day. They got to study. All right, they have to run extra after practice when they miss study hall. I mean, come on. Give me a break. This is not professional football. These guys aren't getting paid to play here. They're representing you all. You should be proud and happy to support them and appreciate what they do and have some gratitude. And you know what else? Nobody wants to win worse than they do. Not me, not you. I don't care what kind of fan you are. Nobody wants to win more than the players that play. Nobody. That was magnificently said. And And nobody feels worse than they do when they lose. Nobody. So for all you self-absorbed folks out there that can't look past your own self, all right, to appreciate what other people are doing. All right, cuz our Come on, you guys look. give
0: Pastor Nick Saban a hand. <laughs> but he's right. And it applies to worldly things like football and it applies to spiritual things like the glory of God. When you're self-absorbed and you cannot see past yourself, you have no idea what you're missing. You're missing the glory of God. You're missing the magnificence of God. You're missing the blessing of God. Let's make it about Christmas now, right? Because this is no vacancy and this is the Christmas season. Christmas is not about you. Christmas is not about your gifts. Christmas is not about the people liking the gifts that you gave them. Christmas is not about your decorations. Christmas is not about your lights. Christmas is not about the family member that offended you. Christmas is not about you worrying about be- offending somebody else. Christmas is not about the meal. Christmas is not about what you, pr- what you prepared. Christmas is not about your kids Christmas is about being humble enough to see the magnitude that the Savior of the world became man, gave up His rights to become nothing, to be a servant so that He could die for us to be elevated to the right hand of God and give us life. That's Christmas. But listen, you have to be a humble servant To see it. You have to be a humble servant or you miss the whole thing. Let's keep going. Fear of God. She moves on now from humility to the fear of God. And she says the fear of God brings mercy and might. I love this. Luke 1, 50 through 52. She says his mercy extends to those who fear him. You can circle that word fear. Anytime the Bible talks about fear of God, it's not talking about like flinching at the bully's fake punch, right? It's like, oh, you know, like, oh, God's here. But it's talking about awe. It's being in awe of God. So let's read it with that. It says, His mercy extends to those who are in awe of Him, who are blown away by Him, who are just so stricken by how wonderful and how great He is. From generation to generation, He has performed mighty deeds with his arm, and scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. Solomon says, Proverbs 1:7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The awe of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. You know, it's, it's, it's a funny thing, but I've been to a couple beautiful places in the world. I've seen the Grand Canyon. That was cool. The most beautiful place that I've been to in the world is in Cape Town, South Africa. They call it Cape Point, and it's the very tip of the world, as they will say. And you go down to this point at Cape Point in Cape Town, and it is where the Indian Ocean and the Atlantic Ocean meet. And it is, it is, it's breathtaking. I mean, it, it absolutely, you stand out at this point and you are at the bottom southern tip of the world. I know y'all thought Texas was the southern tip of the world, but it's not. It's, it's Cape Town, South Africa, right? And right there at Cape Point, these two oceans are colliding. And it's, it, is, it is, you can almost see the dividing line of where they meet. And it's just so big. It's just so majestic. Everyone is standing there and they're just like, Wow. This, I mean, have you, uh, nobody goes there, and nobody goes to the Grand Canyon, nobody goes to Cape Point, South Africa, stands in front of that and says, you know, I feel like I'm a pretty cool person. I'm pretty amazing. Like, have you seen the things that I can do? I'm really, really talented. Hey, when I was 22, I was super fast and I could jump really high and I could lift a lot of weights, Right. Nobody does that. What do they do? They get before something majestic and they soak it in. Why? Because our souls are not meant to be bigger than everything else. They're meant to be smaller. They're meant to be smaller. We are meant to feel inadequate in comparison to majesty. When we take that spiritually and we say, my goodness, I am before God and I'm not going to tell him what to do and I'm not going to tell him what I need and I'm not going to put pressure on him and threaten him and say, I'm not going to serve you anymore if you don't show up in this situation and fix my problems. But we get before him and we say, my goodness, you are unbelievable. You are incomprehensible. I can't wrap my mind around your goodness, your glory, and your majesty. And we become small, and he becomes big, and what does Mary say? He performs mighty deeds, and he lifts the humble up. You want to go here, go here. You want to see more of this? Go here. Be in humility. And then he finishes here and we'll wrap this up and my goodness, I think we're going to be on time. Don't hold your breath. (laughs) The hungry are filled with good things. Luke 1, 53 through 55 says he has filled the hungry with good things but has sent the rich away empty. He's helped his servant Israel remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. You know what's really cool? Mary sings this before Jesus' birth, and then Jesus preaches this in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Mary says, He's filled the hungry with good things. Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. That word for hungry is the Greek word pineo. It means, it's where we get the English poverty from. It's not talking about a hunger like, Wow, he preached too late and I'm going to be late to lunch and I'm, I'm pretty hungry right now, right? It's talking about a hunger within your soul that you, it, it is a deep, poor, Broken, starving hunger. They use the exact same word to call the beggars who stood outside the gates of the city begging for food. It is people who are desperately hungry deep within their souls for what God has. He says those are the ones who are filled with good things. Anyone have a six-year-old or they're close by um, that, that has every excuse in the entire world when it comes to bedtime? Come on, don't make me feel like the only one, right? It is, it is, it's unbelievable, like the things that he comes up with. And usually the last one is, and this is right after he's brushed his teeth, of course, right? Brushes his teeth, has to go to the bathroom, forgot something in the car, needs to put this away, can't sleep without the right blanket, doesn't have the right pillow, blah, 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 blah. Teeth are finally brushed, he's finally in his bed, and he says, Dad, I'm starving, no 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 no. he said dad I'm so hungry." he said dad you can't make me go to bed hungry right so I'm like okay fine I agree I get under this like conviction of like yeah what kind of dad are you so I'm like fine here's what I can do I can get you a a z-bar oatmeal chocolate chip no I don't really want that I'll make you a peanut butter and jelly real quick. No, I don't really want a peanut butter and jelly either. Okay, I'll cook you a hot dog and we got some leftover mac and cheese. I'll mix it all together, put a little ketchup on top. How many of y'all know that's a fire meal, right? So and he says, no, I don't, I don't really want that either. And I said, okay, I'll see you in the morning when it's breakfast time. And he says, no, you can't, you can't. And I said, yeah, I can't. he said, but I'm starving. And I said, you're not starving. And he said, yes, I am. And I said, you'll be starving when you're willing to eat whatever I give you. That's what Mary's saying here. That's what Jesus is saying here. It's not hungry uh, hungry of God of like, yeah, I may sing another worship song. It's not hungry of like, hey, if you meet my needs, I'll be more excited about you. It is a desperate hunger for God, willing to take whatever he gives you and give him glory for it. And worship him for it. Who are the people that are filled with good things according to Mary? Who are the people that are filled according to Jesus? It's the people who have a hunger so deep and so longing for him that they will receive whatever he gives them and worship him for it. Those are the people filled with good things. So, what is Christmas? What is Christmas then? Let's run through them really quick. Christmas is not about me has nothing to do with me. Christmas should remind me how humble of a servant I am. What is Christmas? Christmas is the awe of God. The awe that God became man in the form of a child and gave up all of his rights to go to a cross to save me. And what is Christmas? It's a reminder of the hunger I should have in my bones for more of him. And only more of him and what he can do. It's not about me. It's not about my gifts. It's not about who makes me happy and who doesn't make me happy. It's all about Jesus.